Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. JBR Capital has sponsored the Intercooler podcast for several months now. You've probably heard me talk about the company before. In that time, I've come to really understand what it is that makes JBR Capital different to other car finance companies. If I had to boil it down to one thing, I'd say it's this. Car finance is all JBR Capital does. Might sound like a minor detail, that, but in fact, it's really important. It means JBR Capital has a profound understanding of the car marketplace and of car buyers, an understanding that other finance companies could only hope to have. In fact, that very focused approach is exactly why the company was started in the first place. We recently had Darren Seelig, founder of JBR Capital, on the podcast, episode 106, if you want to go back and listen. And he explained that he started the company when he realized that general finance lenders actually didn't understand cars or car buyers particularly well at all. So he spotted that gap in the market and he founded JBR Capital to fill it. So before you buy your next car, be it a supercar, sports car, classic car, a hypercar, or a luxury car, even if it's a brand new car, go and see what JBR Capital can do for you on the finance side. And it really helps us if you tell them that the intercooler sent you. JBR Capital is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome to episode 120 of the podcast, everybody. Dan Prosser and Andrew Frankel with you here. Andrew, we're mostly talking about Maserati this week. Um, Not for any particular reason other than we wanted to talk about Maserati. Um, But there are a couple of other things that we have to get through first. Let's just talk French Grand Prix for a moment. Um, Mm. Because if there is a theme to this season's... Okay, if there was a theme to last year's championship, it was the Titanic duel between... Verstappen and Hamilton, wasn't it? If there's a theme to this one, it's surely the Titanic duel between Ferrari and Ferrari. <laughs> uh, it is. I mean, this is going to be the. I mean, this is looking like the season where Ferrari, you know, shot itself in both feet because 
I think they've now got the quickest car. Uh, I think they've definitely, with the possible exception of Mercedes, got the best driver lineup. Um, and you know whether it's Charles' mental fragility, which cost him the win at the weekend, or the team costing Carlos, I think, a certain podium position through more bizarre strategy calls. You know, calling him in that late, knowing how long that pit lane was, how slowly you have to go down it. I mean, they must have known. Well, they clearly didn't. Um, but, you know, it's... you know, and, 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 and as I said this on this podcast before, I'm such a Ferrari fan, and it pains me to see a, a team that hasn't won big, big for... I think this is the 15th season. Um, and being presented with this i mean and we've seen it before haven't we where ferrari has gone into the season you know not that long ago with the best car and somehow by the end of it it has managed not to win the championship um and i think that's where we're going this time yeah you asked me after last week um when leclerc won the austrian grand prix um quite convincingly actually um or certainly he won it on merit um, at a track where Max has been very quick, very successful in recent years. Um, and it looked like maybe this was a turning point. Perhaps Ferrari, perhaps Leclerc were getting their seasons together and they were going to mount a title challenge. <clears throat> and the So he's winning this race yesterday. Um, Verstappen and Red Bull go for the undercut by pitting first. And then Leclerc on his inlap, he knows he has to push hard. Um, and in a quick right-hander, chucks it off. It looks like... He was driving too hard on old tyres, um, just pushed them too far, um, and off he went. It was pure driving error, um, but he's, it was enormously costly. Had he won that race, the, the, the difference in points between him, him and Verstappen could have been 30. Instead, it's 63. So as a swing, that is enormous. And now Verstappen... We're just over halfway through the season. He almost finds himself in a position where he can just finish second to Leclerc every race and win the championship. He's not be quite there calculation. yet. There'd be an interesting calculation, wouldn't it? You know, how many more does he have to win? Um, yeah, yeah, and it's you know, and it, and it's. I mean, I don't know if you heard Charles's interview where he was. I mean, laceratingly honest with himself. Um, and I, I so admire that. I really do. I think it's it's extraordinary that someone will speak with such honesty and you know not blame anything other than um, than himself. But at the same time, you know, it's it, it is revealing, isn't it, of a of a mental fragility. I mean, Damon uh, tweeted that it was a fatal flaw. Um, I'm not sure I'd go that far. Uh, certainly not on the basis of one mistake. Um, but you know, he's got a, you know, it's not, it's no good, is it being that fast if you're going to throw it off? Um, and it's no good being part of a team that, you know, cocks it up so often, you know, you've got to, we said this again before on the podcast, it's everything, isn't it? It's, it's having a fast car. It's having a reliable car. It's having fast drivers. It's having reliable drivers. And it's about having a team which doesn't make mistakes or makes fewer mistakes than anybody else. Um, and it seems to me, it's like this sort of strange recipe. They've got all the raw ingredients, but they're just mixing them up in really weird orders and leaving stuff out. And, you know, it, it's so I find it so frustrating because you just think that if you could just put one person, just get a Ross Braun back in the team or someone like that, bang a few heads together, 
and just say, look, guys, you can't carry on doing it like this. You know, if you're going to beat, I mean, you know, they're off this pretty serious opposition in the forms of you know, Red Bull and Mercedes. You know, if you are going to beat those guys consistently out there and Max, um, you know, you need to be on top of your game every lap, every race, every weekend for all of it or mm. else forget it. <clears throat> yeah, so you asked me last week if I thought um, that the Austrian Grand Prix was a turning point and whether or not Ferrari would really start mounting a challenge. And I think I said, I actually don't see it happening because I don't think they're quite well drilled enough to to tackle a team, an outfit as metronomic as Red Bull and Verstappen. I think, I think you have to be absolutely on your A game to compete with those, that combination. And Ferrari just clearly yep. are not there at the moment. So, and what really, so what really worries me about it is, you know, they have come good, in theory at least, in, a, in the same season where Mercedes, for the first time in goodness knows how long, have dropped the ball. You can't expect them to be that accommodating next year. You have to expect that they will be back. You know, Red Bull aren't going to get any worse. And so they have this golden opportunity. Um, and they're squandering it. Mm. Through mistakes. It's so frustrating. Yeah. Do you think the championship is over, the driver's championship? Yes, I do. You do? Yeah, I do. I do. I do, I'm afraid. I think it's... I, yeah, I, you know, I think it might be over quite soon. Mm. I, I, say that, I say this because I'm so often wrong about this stuff. I think if I say it, then it won't happen. <laughs> and, that, and, and, that, and that Charles will mount this incredible comeback and you know, we'll have another Abu Dhabi, um, I, I, which I hope for. But I, you know, I think... I think Max is too good. I think Red Bull is too good. Um, unless they get complacent, which I don't see happening. Um, yeah, no, I think it's gone. Hope I'm wrong. Well, we shall see. <clears throat> we shall see. Um, okay, well, we can segue this quite nicely. Charles Leclerc is Monegasque. Monaco, oh, Monte good. Carlo. Paddy <laughs> Hopkirk's greatest victory. And yeah. he won Monte Carlo Rally in 1964, didn't he? And we had the sad news last week that he'd passed away um i I, yeah i was lucky enough to spend a bit of time with paddy i don't know 10 12 years ago um i went to his house to interview him and he was very welcoming and just invited me in with a photographer and we chatted about rallying for a couple of hours it was fantastic and then i remember um being on a trip to um the monte carlo rally maybe a couple of years later with minnie um, and Paddy was there as a guest. And what I really vividly remember was being in the minibus from Nice Airport into Monaco with him. And he was just such great company. Extremely un-PC, but yeah. very, very funny. Um, yeah. In great spirits. Um, what are your memories of Paddy, Hop- Paddy Hopkirk? Well, funny enough, I knew, I mean, obviously I'd, I'd known of him since I was a kid, but I actually knew of him purely coincidentally, um, personally before, professionally, because... His elder daughter Kate was kind of sort of knocked about in the same sort of social social circle as you know, and went out with a mate of mine for a while, uh, and so I sort of met him through Kate, and she was terrific fun. Um, and then I met her dad, um, and he was he I just remember he was such a he was just a really really funny guy, um, and never seemed to take things terribly seriously. The sort of you know, there, there are rally drivers out there like that. Oh, there certainly used to be, who guys who just seem to really love life and don't seem to take it all desperately seriously. Um, and he was one of them. And 
you know, he was obviously fantastic um, at what he did. Let's not forget he raced as well, uh, won his class at Le Mans, um, came second in the 1968 London-Sydney rally, and only because he stopped to help somebody out of a burning car, otherwise he'd won it. Um, you know, so great man, great driver, great fun. Yeah, fantastic. He was also... You know, the Monte Carlo Rally was a different event in the 60s. It was an enormous sort of Europe-wide thing. And winning mm. it with Mini made him very, very famous, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he helped put Mini on the map. Um, yeah. And he was part, you know, and he, and he kicked off um, that... Well, it would have been a hat-trick of wins had, <laughs> had, 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 had they not kicked the team out for having the wrong light filaments. And they basically, the French, kicked out every <laughs> single uh, team. It wasn't just Mini. There was another one as well that finished ahead of, I think it was a Citroen. Yeah. So Citroen <laughs> won the rally. Um, but they won, the Minis won it again in 67. So you know, the Mini won the Monty three times in the 60s, between 64 and 67. And yeah, Paddy's was the first. I think he came third in 67 as well, um, co-driving with Henry Lydon. So yeah, yeah. No, proper bloke. Yeah, proper bloke, a life well lived. Um, <clears throat> let's move it on then to Maserati. Mm. Um now, why are we talking about Maserati? You, so you, said, you said at the start of this there wasn't really... We, we were doing it because we kind of wanted to, which, which we are. But also, I think it's... I think we are at a turning point because they, they, have, yeah. they have made this sort of big commitment. You know, Maserati, is, is, it's been for a while one of those sort of will-it-won't-it um, kind of marks. And now under Stellantis, there's been... Well, it will. And we're going to... I think they said something like 13 new models between now and 2025. Um and you know they're going into Formula E in the next season. There's cl- you know they, they're rebuilding factories. There's clearly they've clearly decided the Maserati is worth saving, um, and you know that process starts now. Um, so I think it is. I think it's you know historically it's obviously a fascinating company. Um, you know we've seen you know in the MC20 something of enormous promise, the most promising Maserati certainly in my professional lifetime. Um, and I think it's just a really interesting subject, um, you know, not just sort of gazing into the mist of time, but also to think about what may or may not come of it in the future. So we'll <clears throat> we'll chop through the history, a little bit of racing. We'll talk about some of the cars, its current state and what's in, in store. But before we do that, can I just propose that Maserati is the Italian Jaguar? I'm, I'm drawn to the parallels between them. Uh, mm. <laughs> except I think this is going to be awful Jaguar made some world beating road cars yeah XK120 E-Type Mark II Maserati never did I don't think it's as good as Jaguar was mm. I don't think it's ever been as good as Jaguar was then again Jaguar never succeeded in Formula One, and Maserati in the 1950s clearly did. So, go on, stand it up. Well, um, okay, so very romantic brands, upmarket brands with great histories in racing and in road cars as well. But I, I suppose the, the, the comment that I wanted to make was that they found themselves in a parlous state in the last couple of decades, really. Their heydays yes. appear to be well behind them. Absolutely. Um, They've both been drawn into the mass market game, perhaps Jaguar more so, building a rival to the 3 Series. We know yeah. Maserati builds a rival to the, to the 5 Series, the Ghibli. Uh, both building SUVs. Um, and it, 
in, in either case, I don't know if I can stand this up, but in either case, it doesn't seem as though that mass market play has paid off. No, I don't think it has. Um, I don't think, well, well, we know that it hasn't. Um, and, you know, there are very good reasons for that. You know, I, it's always struck me as being optimistic in the extreme to think that if you're a little company with little company resources, um, you can go and play, you know, the BMW, ID Mercedes game. Yeah. Yeah, it's you know why would you? I mean, what you're doing because I think it's really, really hard to imagine that you're going to do it better than them, just because of the resource issue, both in terms of time and uh, money and personnel. Uh, so what you're doing is you're going to appeal to people who, for some reason, have decided they don't already want one of the established players, and you know. It's a pretty conformist market, isn't it? That's why they're big, you know. And so people do go to what they know and what they like. Um, so, yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think the difference, and, you know, note to self, we're going to do another Jaguar podcast soon because I think that's a, that's a story and a half. I think all I would say is that Maserati appears at the moment to have a much firmer plan for the future than Jaguar. I mean, Jaguar is almost a moribund mark at the moment. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, 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 I can see what you're saying. Um, but if I had to bet on one right now, and maybe it's just because Maserati be more public about what they're going to do, I'd bet on Maserati rather than Jaguar. Mm, that's very interesting. Yeah, very interesting. And being part of that enormous Stellantis group has yeah. got to help in some ways. Sure. Um, <clears throat> should we wind it all the way back then? 1st of December, 1914. I want to oh. put you in Bologna, in Italy. Um, yeah. uh, that's when the company was founded. Um, founded by Alfieri Maserati, one of the Maserati brothers. There were loads of them. Loads of these brothers. Let me just run through the names. First we had Carlo, then Bindo, then Alfieri I, who very sadly died as a baby. So we had Alfieri II, a year later. Mario Atori Torre and Ernesto, all of them involved in one way or another in the car industry and with Maserati. It's a proper family affair, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And well, it certainly used to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course. I mean, they must have just been incredibly bright as a family. Those boys—they were all engineers or um, you know involved in in the in the business somehow. Um, really, a, a sort of <clears throat> a family of outliers. Um, so, and there, are, there is a parallel with Ferrari here, because really Maserati was founded as a racing car company. Yeah, as was Ferrari. Um, and, you know, Maserati, it was, it was quite successful um, pre-war, um, but nothing like as successful. The problem was is that, and, you know, and you could say there's a parallel here with, you know, modern times. It was not, never quite as successful as the opposition. So the opposition back then... Um, was kind of Alfa Romeo mainly, um, particularly the Enzo Ferrari one run Alfa Romeo race team in the in the 1930s, and then obviously the Germans came along with the ridiculous you know auto unions and massive Mercedes Benz and made everyone look thoroughly stupid, and it was it, it's kind of like the perpetual bridesmaid, isn't it? Well, certainly was um, pre-war, uh, and it only really and I think we should probably skip forward to the post-war era because I think that's where the interest lay. It was really only in the 1950s when they designed this thing called the 250F, that suddenly um, 
it was absolutely front and center and you know the car to have not just as a works racing car um but also you know privateers i mean if it hadn't been for maserati sterling moss would never have gone to mercedes-benz because sterling's dad alfred bought him a 250f as you do um and it was his performances and that that got him noticed by mercedes-benz and the rest is history so um yeah so i mean to me um they really arrive on the scene in the 1950s and uh, what was their championship winning year was it 57 well so fangio won it in the championship in 54 and everybody yeah. thinks oh well he was driving for mercedes-benz that year which he was but everybody also forgets that he arrived at mercedes-benz quite late and his first couple of wins that season were in a 250f and then obviously Mercedes-Benz came along uh, for the rest of 54 and 55 and then Fangio won it in the Lancia Ferrari in 56. And then in 57, because I think the 250F was a 50, was it was designed in 53 for the new 2.5 litre formula which came at the beginning of 54. So he was in a five-year-old car in 57. Um, but Ferrari had dropped the ball, Mercedes had gone and Fangio was 47 years old and he just made everybody else look you know, silly. I mean, you know, if you see photographs of him going down the hill at Rouen in this 250F with a dented nose at insane angles in the most perfectly executed four-wheel drift. I mean, that was the thing about the 250F. Um, and I have been lucky enough to drive one. Um, they're just driver's cars. They were never the most powerful cars out there. They were never technically the best. But you could drive the wheels off them. You could drive them over the limit all the time and they just responded to it. And that was the secret of that car. And at places like Rouen, which was the most scary circuit in all of Grand Prix racing, and places and at the Nürburgring, which was the second most scary circuit in all of Grand Prix motor racing, um, where Fangio won the 57 Grand Prix, um, probably, which is legendarily the greatest Grand Prix that there's ever been because he hunted down the Ferraris of Collins and Hawthorne, um, broke the lap record, I think, nine times um, in a 250. I mean, that's where that car excelled you know the more difficult the circuit the more it allowed the greatest drivers to shine the greater the advantage the 250f have and that's why it sort of passed into folklore that's why people love them today um and yeah they are one of the most important significant racing cars of any kind um not just in formula one that there's ever been based on what you've just said then 57 seems like it was a triumphant year for yeah. Maserati in racing, but why didn't many more championships follow? It's interesting, isn't it? Um, you know, they were they were doing pretty well in sports car racing too, with the gorgeous 300s and the less successful 450s. But you know, that, just going about that Nurburgring win, you know, what people didn't know at the time, well, okay, it sealed champ- um, Fangio's fifth world championship, but that was his last world championship. It was also his last win. Um, it is also to date maserati's last win now i think yes i think in 1968 a cooper won with a maserati engine in the back of it um somewhere maybe monza can't remember anyway um but as a as a constructor that race at the nurburgring you know the the highest point of both maserati um and fangio the greatest driver of zero's lives was also an end and no one knew it at the time um they continued into 1958 but uh, but but fangio had gone off the boil he wasn't interested he retired i think halfway through the season and um 
yeah, and, and, and others came, you know, it, 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 it was the end. And it's, you know, although Maserati came back a bit in the early 60s with, you know, cars like the beautiful Birdcage, was it a Tipo 61, I think, uh, which was successful in places, um, it's, never been, it's never really been back. Uh, and so to this day, and it shows, doesn't it, how, um, how enduring a legacy it's been, uh, you know, we still think of Maserati as a great racing mark. But actually, if you look back and you look at, you know, no Maserati ever won Le Mans. Um, you know, so if you think of the really, no, no Maserati ever won the Daytona 24 hours. So if we, if we think about the great Maserati successes on a global scale that anyone is likely to remember, what we're talking about is the 250F. Yeah, one car. Amazing, yeah. isn't it, really? It is incredible how a story, a heritage, can be built on actually relatively little success um, if it was done in the right way. Um, so that really is... I mean, Maserati has raced in the GT1 chan- championship in more recent times, but as far the, the, yeah, the Maserati motor racing story kind of comes to an end in the late 50s, doesn't it? Yeah, um, it does. Well, so, yeah, so, I, mean, the, no, the, the, I mean, the birdcage did win... Yeah. Um, you know a few, a few quite major races but but in terms of the perception of the you know not the arch enthusiast but the man or woman in the street um who might know a little bit um yeah it does it absolutely does mm. amazing so I, I suppose then we should have to move it onto the road cars because yep. as the motor racing side declined the road car thing really got going didn't it um where do you want to begin? I mean, the heyday in the 60s, do you think that's a fair representation? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Um, and again, the heyday, we talk about it. So this I sound like a really negative or not. I don't, I, you know, I, I love the brand. <laughs> I really, really want it to really fly. But again, the truth is, you know, it's more bridesmaid stuff. It's, you know, I've driven most of those cars and they just weren't as good as the Ferraris and Lamborghinis of the same era. Um, you know, they've, they've got wonderful names, haven't they? Like, you know, Indy and Ghibli and Kamsin and Kailami and, and, and that sort of thing. And, and they looked wonderful. And they had these, you know, these big brutish V8 engines in them. But, you know, it may be that I just didn't drive very good examples, but they always just felt a bit ponderous a bit you know sort of you know nice touring cars i guess if you can afford to put the fuel in them um lovely looking things but more a car to be seen in than to drive um whereas if you think of the rivals uh you know lamborghini mira um or you know the daytona ferrari and then going into the early 70s with the boxer and the countach and that sort of thing these you know these are those are the icons aren't they they are the and they were at the time you know, uh, I don't remember Maserati, you know, winning group tests back then or, you know, anybody saying that these cars were, you know, were better than the opposition. Um, so, I mean, I've said this before and I've, be, I've been accused of being unfair. I'm not trying to be at all. I'm just calling it as I see it. I just never saw Maserati as anything other than, you know, the third best of the three yeah. great Italian modern supercar manufacturers. Mm. It does seem fair. Although there's one outstanding model, isn't there, that you will always have a soft spot for. Oh, yeah, but we're in the 70s now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Just about, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. so 1971. What a year 1971 was. So Lamborghini unveiled the Countach, Ferrari unveiled the Boxer, and Maserati unveiled the Bora. 
And, you know, I was a young lad in the 70s and I pretty much ignored the Bora because the the Lamborghini um, just looked incredible. The Ferrari was more sexy and, you know, I was a Ferrari fan through and through anyway. Um, and the Bora wasn't as quick and blah. Um, but there, I guess it, maybe it's an age thing, but it's also, you know, I did drive one and suddenly I found myself in a Maserati that I suddenly understood and I got on with it. And I just thought the Bora was a fabulous car. Not as overt, not as obvious as, you know, either of its Italian rivals, but in many ways better because it was so usable. You know, it had so much luggage space. It was so, it was quiet, it was comfortable, and yet it was properly quick too. Certainly the ones with the, with the big 4.9 litre version of the V8 in them were, you know, they were fast cars. Um, they handled nicely. They had that, I keep on banging on about this, but they, they had a fixed seating position and the pedals and the steering wheel slid. So, you know, back then, you know, Ferraris and Lamborghinis, the steering wheel didn't even move. It was just where they you know, put it. And if that was inconvenient for you, tough. Um, but the Maserati didn't do that. Um, you know, both the pedals uh, and the steering wheel adjusted for reach. And so, you could, you know, the car came to you. And, yeah, I also think it's a beautiful, beautiful car. Um, it's Giugiaro styling. And I think that's sort of, as, as I sort of matured a bit, I began to appreciate what a subtle, delicate, wonderful piece of work it was, as was its little sister, the Merak, uh, which is very, very similar in appearance. Um, until I drove the MC20, um, the Bora was certainly far and away the best Maserati I'd ever done. In fact, I would say, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about by turbos and all that stuff that came later on, um, you know, I would say that you know the Bora was the best Maserati of of, of any kind that, that that there had been until, well, frankly, twenty twenty two. Okay, well, accepting the MC twenty, is there an argument to be made? Is the Bora um, on the road car side what the two fifty F was on the racing side? This pinnacle, this moment that maybe people would have assumed would propel the mark into greater things, and in fact, actually turned out to be the peak. What I would say to that is that it should have been. And had it not basically lived in the shadow, you know, it's that moderner thing, isn't it? You know, with Lamborghini and Ferrari just down the road, had it not lived in the shadow of those two cars, um, then it absolutely would have been. It would have been seen to be, you know, the road car moment for Maserati. But I still think it's under the radar. I still think don't people, I'd still think people don't appreciate how good the Bora was. Um, because it hasn't got those dramatic looks. It hasn't got the ultimate Ferrari Lamborghini name to it. Um, and so people don't see it that way. But, you know, the point you make is a good one. And even though it wasn't perceived as such, in reality, that's exactly what it was. It was the pinnacle. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it demonstrates, doesn't it, how significant the arrival of the MC20 really is. We, we know the, the MC12 was there um, a little while ago, although it was really an Enzo underneath, wasn't it? Um, and uh, and so this MC20 is um, Maserati getting back into the, the purpose-built mid-engine supercar game. Um, and we, we know you like it. We'll come on to that in a moment. But there are all sorts of other models that we do need to be talking about. Um, there's Quattroportes and Biturbos and so on. Um, where do you want to begin? <laughs> well, I mean, I sort of get, I get confused because there are so many of their Carice yeah. and Shamals and... Yeah. You know, all sorts of things i mean and and that's before we start talking about you know grand coupes and grand turismos and grand cabrias and grand this and grand that and everything else um 
where do we want to begin? Uh, we, I don't think we've got time to go through them all. I, I love the early Quattroportos. I think they were, well, I say the early Quattroportos, the early of the modern Quattroportos, because obviously they were making them back in the 70s. Um, fantastic looking cars. But, you know, Maserati has a history of making cars that are absolutely beautiful. Um, but they write checks the car beneath can't quite cash. Um, and, you know, all those bi-turbos ones, they did, I, the one I really liked is that there was a Ghibli, not the modern Ghibli, or indeed the old Ghibli, but the one in between, <laughs> uh, which was a bi-turbo-based car. And the car they sold over here had a 2.8-litre V6, and it, it, it was okay. But there was an Italian. Do you remember the tax break special, the two-litre tax break yeah. cars that they used to build for the Italian market? There was a two-litre Ghibli, a twin-turbo two-litre Ghibli, and they brought one over. And I think it had 300-something horsepower. And for some reason, I just, I just really, really liked that car. Um, that's really the only one of those cars that I can remember thinking that's quite special. Um, and then came the coupe with the boomerang headlights and the spider that came after it. So I can remember doing a, a quadruple test uh, down in the West Country with, uh, with Chris Harris when we were both on auto car. And we had the spider... We had an M3 cab. We must have had a 911 convertible. And we had something else. Um, maybe it was an SL. Can't remember. Anyway, four convertibles went down there. And I can remember driving the Maserati down there. And the scuttle shape being so bad <laughs> that the trident in the center of the steering wheel became a blur. I could literally, I couldn't make out what the emblem was in How many the center prongs? of the steering wheel. How many prongs? Okay, there's no way I could have done that. Um, and I wrote this um, I wrote this group test in Autocar in which the Maserati came surprise surprise plum last um, shortly thereafter the telephone rang somebody else picked it up and he said and, and they said it's Richard Mackay for you Richard Mackay was the managing director of Maserati in the UK at the time and I thought oh god I'm for it now um, and I went uh, hi Richard and he went it's about that test you wrote in Autocar I went, uh, yes. And he said, thank you so much. Because they don't listen to me. Maybe now they'll listen to you. Brilliant. Good attitude. So, good attitude. Yeah, good attitude. Um, I mean, all those cars, they were, you know, they, I always used to get quite excited about driving them. And then by the time I'd driven them, I always wondered why I had. Because yeah. they never, they never quite delivered it. I think I think a Quattroporto, because you expect less of it dynamically. Um is a nicer thing and because they were so beautiful um you could forgive it a lot but you know objectively that or name your m5 or e63 i mean forget it mm. yeah i remember driving a um a so a 4200 gt is that right the yeah, so yeah. the follow-up to the 32 it didn't have the boomerang rear lights um yeah but it did have an that's NA the one engine. that the spider was based on yeah yeah um, actually, it was the spider that I drove. That's right. And I, I remember it wobbling. Um, but also, I mean, this one was a, a slight, it was a, I don't know, 10 year old car at this point, And it was fairly unloved. But I remember the seating position just didn't work for me. The clutch pedal, um, I would always just be fouling it slightly with my foot on the, the footrest. Um, the roof didn't work. The interior was sort of falling apart. And I just thought, this isn't a very nice car at all. Um, maybe they're a bit better when they were brand new and fresh out of the factory. I don't know, but that was a very, very underwhelming moment. Um, what about the Gran Turismo? Look fantastic, wonderful engine, 
but yeah. you're not leaping out of your seat in joy, are you there? Not at all. Not at no. all. I can remember the last job I did with one, we went round... I'm trying to remember whether it was when Sterling died. No, I think it was before that. But for some reason, I did a job for Autocar where around everywhere in the UK that was significant to Sterling's career. Um, and we went to Aintree, where he won his first Grand Prix. We went to Alton Park, where he won the Gold Cup and the Ferguson P99 thing. Anyway, we, we were sort of beetling around the country. And um, I had a photographer. For some reason, I had to go in two cars. And my photographer was in a Civic Type R, a, a current Civic Type R. And point to point, the Civic was so much faster <laughs> than this Maserati. It was, it was an absolute joke. We said, one car we were in, who was ever in the Civic, would just sit on the back of the Maserati wondering why its driver wasn't going faster. Whereas the bloke in the Maserati was driving pretty much as fast as they'd ever want to drive a car on a public road. And, yeah, it was... It just wasn't up to it. Mm. You know, ergonomically, it annoyed you. The infotainment system was annoying. And, you know, it's just not enough to have cars. Which, I mean, they were such good-looking cars. I mean, they looked mm. amazing. It looks amazing. It just didn't do it, though. Mm. And that was why, you know, when the MC20 suddenly turned up, it was just like, wow. Yeah. I just, let's, you know... Let's do, sorry, let's do MC20 in a moment, because you're not a huge fan of the MC12 either, are you? The Enzo-based... It's a hypercar, really. Well... I, no, um, I wasn't. God, God, I'm sounding negative today. It's like some Monday morning and I've sort of woken up and fallen out the wrong side of the bed. I don't, really don't mean to. Um, no, no, I, mean, I didn't. You know, I, I, what I remember about it was the steering was just, it had no feel at all. It was that really light, um, power-assisted, didn't give me any confidence. That's the thing, and I always say this on this podcast, is if you're going to drive a car that fast, fast, um, it, job one is to is, is to make its driver confident, which means you've got to be LC out of it. It's got to have steering yet that you can depend on and understand. Of, and it just didn't. And the engine was amazing. Um, it looked amazing. Everything else, but it didn't do those fundamental things nearly well enough um, for me to think that this is we should be considering this as being one of the great supercars. I never have. I've never thought it deserved a place up there in the sort of galaxy of great supercars mm. um mm. Yeah. well i've i've only driven the course version which yeah, is a very different machine podcast before very different machine it's got the suspension from the gt1 it's but it's yeah. a track car more aero it's lower um it's an extraordinary looking looking thing fantastically intimidating but yeah i i drove it on track and i absolutely adored it and the, the yeah. powertrain the engine astonishing but that's a, it's a very different machine you want the, you were worried that you were being too negative so let's bring in some positivity and talk about the mc20 um i'm sure we've spoken about it already on the podcast but yeah this is their latest mid-engined twin turbo v6 supercar carbon tub and you i liked it a lot didn't you i liked it i liked it a huge amount i mm. more than anything else it's the first maserati i think i've ever driven where and I conclude the Bora in this because you know the Bora was as good as it looked. This the MC20 is better than it looks, and it looks amazing. Mm. Mm. Um, Fantastic. It's the only one I've got into where the car fulfills absolutely on the promise of its appearance. Um, yeah, I really, really liked it. I was surprised by it. Um, it felt, and I'm not the first person to have said this, but it felt like a sort of slightly bigger A110. It felt so. Mm. 
nimble um, and agile and you know exactly what I was saying about the MC12 but in reverse I did feel confident in it yeah um, yeah I can remember I had a big moment in it because I was going reasonably quickly in the wet down on the road I know well which is undulating and something I can't remember what it was just pulled out of the side turning in front of me and I was going quite fast and I was coming out of a corner at the time and the road was wet and I thought well I'm going to have to you know do something quite dramatic here and the car just it was absolutely impeccable. It wasn't even. A, it turned out not to be any kind of incident at all. But I thought I was going to be. Re- I thought I was about to get really busy, and the car just looked after me. And, and and you know, I wouldn't wish that kind of experience for that kind of experience. But again, it just gave me the confidence to make me think. Actually, this is not just a great-looking car that is very fast on paper. Um, it's a properly engineered job, and it was. I think it's a fantastic car. Um, and you know and it's also i think it's significant because why would maserati build a car like that i think it's a stalking horse i think this is maserati this is this is you know uh the new regime saying we're back you know this is us guys this is what we can do and i think that they intend it as a sort of <sighs> look into i mean they're clearly not to make mc20s but i think it's it, it, it's it's a brand builder for them um and goodness knows they need it um so yeah there's going to be an mc20 spider i think later this year there's going to be an mc20 ev um yeah which i think is going to be um interesting um but yeah but oh, but at the same time you know they're also building you know suvs they're building the levante mm. there's the Grecale, which mm. is a what's it based on it's an alpha stelvio isn't it um so yeah. they're still doing the mainstream thing um, just one last word on MC20. There's also Project 24, which was unveiled just last week. Um, it's a track-only version of the MC20. Um, 62 to be built. 740 horsepower. Um, FIA-approved safety features below 1,250 kilograms. So it looks like a fairly extraordinary machine. Um, I quite fancy a go in that, please. I, I liked this line uh, from the very short press release. Based on the brand's obsession with lightness. And that was it. I'm just not sure. Really? I mean, it's not Lotus, really? is it? <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm not sure they can stand that up at all. Oh, um, that's all right. I mean, that's, that's, that's fine. They, they haven't said what, what it's going to cost. No, they haven't. It'll be some terrifying sum, won't it? Um, but there we go. If they can make a few quid out of it, then why not? Um, yeah. Okay, so that's the MC20. Yeah, you've, you've started talking about the future. And of course, the future is electric and its um, strategy, its electric strategy is called Folgore, which means lightning, which yeah. makes sense. Folgore. Um, and so there will be electric versions of, um, of the current cars and of course it'll be all electric um, before too long. Um, the Ghibli is dying. MC20. Sorry? The Ghibli is dying. Um, I mean, the Ghibli okay. is, I think it's 10 years old this year or maybe next year, but I mean, it's an old car anyway. And I, well, I say it's dying. I, I, all, I'm, all I'm saying is I haven't seen anything in any future product plan no. No. Um, that has the word Ghibli in it. So I'm sure if it, if it was part of the future, it, it, they, they'd have said so. So I presume it's... Um, well, so what I've got here is that there will be electric versions of the MC20, the new Quattroporte, so that's living on, um, yep. and the new full-size Levante um, and the Gracali. So it's going to be SUVs, one saloon car, um, yeah. and sports cars, isn't it? Yeah, uh, I also read somewhere that the new... Well, there, yes, there's, there's, a, there's going to be an all-new Gran Turismo. Yeah. Uh, the EV version of which is going to have 1,200 horsepower. Oh. <laughs> is that necessary? 
Who knows? Well, it'd probably weigh a bit, won't it? Um, I yeah. don't know. I don't. I, I don't know. <sighs> I'd, hmm. Full yeah, electric I mean, by twenty thirty, the entire range. Um, yeah, I mean, it'll be fun trying these cars, won't it? How powerful is I the MC twenty so. going to be then? The electric one. That's going to have a wedge, isn't it? It's going to um, have to. It's going to have yeah. to, 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 you know, because it's going to have to have, because it's going to have to have something that the MC20 doesn't have. Um, it's certainly not going to sound any better. Um, <laughs> it's certainly going to be heavier, so I'm guessing it's not going to drive any better. So, and, yeah, so it's going to be the sort of, the usual sort of last recourse of the EV motor. They'll just make it faster, and to mm. make it faster, to overcome the weight better, but it's going to have to have a stack load of power. It's probably going to have a mm. thousand horsepower, isn't it? Mm. Absurd. I actually quite kind of admire Maserati for being so upfront and so clear with its electric strategy. So while others are prevaricating about how to make an electric supercar, Maserati is just going to get on with it and do it. The MC20, the the Gran Turismo. Um, they've I all think, got to I think do it. So I, th- I think they're in a sort of slightly different position, though, aren't they, to, to most in so far as I think that what they're doing is they're making a virtue out of necessity. Because I think that if Maserati don't go, OK, you know, don't build on the momentum of the MC20, which has been very well received, and go, OK, guys, you know, that's what we've just done. This is what we're about to do. Uh, I think that there is a danger that that momentum is going to get lost. So I think they have to kind of use that as almost like the sort of the starter motor for the future plans. You know, get the engine running. Um, and, you know, I think to command credibility, um, you know, they've got to come out into the wide open now, whereas, you know, if they were, you know, a big German premium brand, they could afford to be much more circumspect, do things in a much more sort of measured timetable. But, you know, time is of the essence, Maserati. I mean, you know, Carlos Tavares is an incredible um bloke uh, but he's not going to hang around you know i think maserati has been really been told okay we're going to back you here's the money prove yourselves um and if you don't do that well i mean we don't need to say it do we but um i suspect that you know maserati will absolutely have to deliver because i cannot see someone like him just you know putting up with you know more of the same you know big plans coming to nothing Cars being delayed, not being quite as good as they should be when they turn out. Um, you know, it's got to maintain that momentum because if there's any backward set from, you know, the cars don't have to be as fast or exciting to look at, but in terms of where they sit in the car, how good they are at the job they're designed to do, you know, if they don't maintain that standard that they've now set for themselves, it will be seen as Maserati slipping backwards. And that's not a good look for any car company, let alone one, um, you know, which has had as chequered a past and potentially mm. as fragile a future as, as Maserati. You have to wonder, don't you? And I think others come into this, perhaps Aston Martin, perhaps Jaguar. How can these brands live on indefinitely without returning at some point stable, consistent growth and good profits? They, they just seem to somehow go on and on and on. Over the years, Maserati has been owned independently by the Italian state, by Alejandro Di Tommaso, by Citroen, Fiat, Ferrari, Fiat again, now Stellantis. So it, it's sort of, it's chopped and changed all over the place. Yeah, I mean, I think the difference between it and Aston Martin is that at least it's now owned by, you yeah. know, a major, major player. But then again, even, you know, major players, I don't think are going to necessarily, you know, bankroll it forever. But the, the, you know, these companies, they have a habit of surviving, don't they? I mean, the other yeah. shining example, which has had more turnaround plans than I've had, you know, hot breakfast is Alfa Romeo. Yeah. 
and and they're still out there. You know, yeah. um, it's still it's like you know, unkillable. It seems to be. And I mean, <laughs> who knows how much money Alfa Romeo has lost? You know, um, over the last. 20, 30, 40 years. Um, but it's still out there. It's still doing it. Um, and there must just be this unquenchable sense, unquenchable sense that somehow it's going to come right. And I really hope it does. I hope it comes right for Alfa Romeo. I hope it does for Maserati. I hope it does for Jaguar, <laughs> obviously. Um, but the pie is but, only I mean, so surely, big, isn't it? The pie is only so, so big. But, yeah, and the time must come, particularly at the moment. And I think this is probably a very important po- point to make. You know, we know, don't we, um, that the call on the car, a car manufacturer's purse has never been greater than it is now because they have to basically change the way completely they've been building cars. They've got to build all new EV platforms. They've got to develop all new products, things that they've never done before, with so few carryover bits. Um They've got to change the way they do it too, because you know you can't sort of you know engineer yourself into the history books by putting a V12 in it. They're all going to have the same engines. They're all going to have the same batteries, and so there's going to be less and less tolerance for marks that are underperforming. You know, unless you can absolutely, you know, live at the top, then you know companies even like companies like Stellantis I just can't see them thinking well we're going to we're so stretched financially trying to roll out roll out this entirely new future for us and all these brands of ours are they going to have passengers along for the ride who aren't even you know fair paying I I find it hard to believe so it's very interesting then again you don't want to be the you, you don't want to go down history as the bloke or <laughs> woman who killed Maserati do you you really no. it's not a good look it's not <laughs> no, it's not. Perhaps that's all it is. Perhaps that is the only thing that keeps these great old marks alive. Um, <clears throat> okay, there we go. Yeah, that's Maserati. Uh, what a story. Um, yeah. Let's I'm see excited. What... I'm excited yeah. because I'm, I'm still, you know, on the back of MC20, which came out of nowhere and really surprised me. Um, and I am, because I guess I'm naturally, despite my demeanour, uh, I'm not a fairly optimistic person. Um, I think that Maserati has a fighting chance of it and I wish it all the best um, and well we'll see won't we it's going to be if nothing mm. else it'll be interesting to see what turns out it will it will um, okay well we've got a listener question coming up so don't go anywhere um, first of all JBR Capital thank you for sponsoring the podcast um, you'll find contact details um, in the description um, but if you're looking to buy a new car or a used car with a value greater than £25,000, see what JBR Capital can do for you on the finance side. Um, please also follow um, or subscribe wherever you listen to or watch your podcasts. Um, rate and review as well. That really does help. Please do do that. Uh, the listener question, though, comes from Steve Lawton, uh, who enjoyed the road racing podcast last week, um, particularly the section on the Mille Miglia. And yeah. he begins his question with some nerdy information, which is Ooh. that Wesley JT, the proprietor yeah. of, motorsport of Motorsport at the time of um, the 55 Millimilia, he owned a paper mill and he supplied the toilet roll paper for Jenks course notes. Wow. <laughs> I had absolutely no idea at all. It doesn't sound like a question, but it's a very interesting bit of nerdy info. It, well, that, the, the question follows, but it's a great bit of information. Thank you, Steve. Isn't it? Um, yeah. So the question is, what is your favourite motoring article of all time? His, of course, is Jenks' record of the 55 millimilia in motorsport. 
my favorite motoring article of all time oh blimey do you want to go first or are you just asking okay me? I, I, I'll, I don't know if i have a favorite but there is there is one that um i remember reading it for the first time when it had just been published and i think probably rereading it rereading it again right away it was um dickie meaden's account of competing in the nurburgring 24 hours in a maserati actually that's that's convenient um and you know lots and lots of journalists have um done that subsequently um and i'm sure dicky wasn't the first but um he was in embedded in what was essentially a factory team um and i just it was beautifully written but it was the content of the story competing in this extraordinary race that i actually knew very little about at the time um in a very special car um, and it's it's just a story that has stayed with me. I'd love to re- go back and read it again, actually. Um, but uh, and there are others, but that is the one that leapt to mind. Okay, so now I've had time to think about it. Um, I'm going to go back to well, effectively to my childhood um, because that's actually when I used to consume more motoring media um, than at any other time in my life, and it's a drive story must have come out in about 1979. So this was actually long after the car in question had gone out of production. And I thought it was one of those wonderful drive stories that car magazine used to do where they go and drive a car, not for any reason at all. It wasn't a new car. It wasn't a first drive. It wasn't a group test. It was just, here's a great car, go for a drive. And it was Mel Nichols driving Nick Mason's Ferrari Daytona. And the opening of it, it's just, it's just classic. Well, it's classic Mel, but it's also talk about how to capture the imagination and the interest of your audience he, t- he talks about driving the car going faster and faster and seeing this corner approaching and he's doing some insane speed and he's he's talking to himself and wondering what to do his his head is saying just slow down and his heart is saying no it'll be all right and he's going on about i know they'll be over still i know the back is going to step out how do you ring the owner of such a car and tell him that you've parked it on its roof in the field and was I 13 years old I suppose I was just absolutely captive I used to be able to quote huge tranches of that story and yeah I mean I think of all the stories that they that got written back then I remember the amazing giant test they used to do between you know 911 turbos and Ferrari boxes and Lamborghini Countach and all that sort of thing but I think if there's just one piece of writing that I, I kind of look back on now and think yeah that's how to do it um that was probably that was probably the story Fantastic. And you can read Mel Nichols on the intercooler now, the-intercooler.com. Yeah. That's good, isn't it? Um, yeah. Okay, thank you, Steve, for your question. Keep your questions coming in, please. Um, and we'll end next week's podcast with one as well. Mm-hmm.